welcome all to the fifth episode of Cabana Chats, a podcast about writing and community brought to you by The Resort, an international community of writers based in Queens, New York City. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota, and in this episode of the podcast, I'm in conversation with Michelle Philgate. A lot of what creative nonfiction writers do draws from some of the same things that fiction writers do, and I'm actually really, really interested in the blurring of the boundaries of genre. Michelle Philgate is a contributing editor at Literary Hub and the editor of the anthology, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. She's also currently an MFA student at NYU, and she teaches at a number of different locations. She's also the founder of the Red Ink Reading Series, and in 2016, Brooklyn Magazine named her one of the 100 most influential people in Brooklyn culture. Michelle is also a former board member of the National Book Critics Circle. Michelle and I chatted about how all of the different aspects of her literary life inform each other and the importance of supportive community as we work our way through the writing life. This was a really terrific conversation, and I can't wait for you to enjoy it. I'm so excited to be here today with Michelle Philgate on Cabana Chats, our writing and community podcast. And we're going to have a really great conversation. And just as we get started here, Michelle, I would love to welcome you here to our show and also ask if you could maybe just introduce yourself briefly, even outside of yourself as a writer, but just um, who are you? Where do you live? Just a a snapshot of who Michelle is, just to give context to where you're coming from. Sure. And thank you so much for having me today. Um, So I live in Brooklyn and I've lived here for a decade now. Um, I am finishing up my MFA at NYU uh, in fiction, and I edited an anthology called What My Mother and I Don't Talk About that came out in 2019, uh, the year before everything changed as we know it, the pandemic. Um, I'm really grateful that my book came out when I could still go on book tour, and I really feel for all of the authors whose book tours were virtual this past year. Um, and then I, I, I've been teaching writing for many years now through Sackett Street Writers Workshop and Catapults, um, and a few other places as well, including NYU. Um, this semester I'm going to be teaching at the New School, and I write both creative nonfiction and fiction. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I know you are one of the most supportive writers of other writers that I know. I just want to put that out there and say that off the bat. And when you mentioned that your book came out the year before all of this in the pandemic and now witnessing many other writers, many of your friends um, launching books during this time of being virtual, have you been attending the virtual book launches or how do you find yourself supporting authors during this virtual time? Definitely. I have been doing that. Um, and I've also still been hosting my, my series that I have through books are magic called red ink, which is a quarterly series that focuses on women writers. 
Um, so that's all been on Zoom over the past uh, year and a half. Um, and but yeah, I've I've definitely attended virtual events. I've also done conversations with some people for their book book launches. Um, and it's been. I've also, um, you know, of course, purchased friends' books that have come out. Anything I can do to kind of help right now. Yeah, there are a lot of different ways to support each other, even when we can't see each other in person. And you totally. also did it. Yeah, you also did a um, an event with us at the resort last summer. I recall a wonderful AMA with our members that was really quite quite lovely. Um, it's it's great to hear all these different ways that you can continue to support writers and be with writers even when we can't gather in person because one of the things that I know I was lucky to do alongside you in the before times was um, you organized a regular meetup, I recall, on I think it was on Fridays at a cafe or a bar in Brooklyn, and it was just hey, I'm going to show up and write here. You come and show up and write too. And a few of us would just show up and it was a, a wonderful way to be accountable to each other. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you decided to do that and what that project, for lack of a better word, meant to you? <laughs> yeah, I called it Get Your Ass on the Bench and Write. And it was at 61 Local for a while um, because that place, you know, it's a bar at night, but during the day, a lot of people it's a cafe as well. And a lot of people, um, work from there during the day. So I, I just, the reason I came up with it is because I think that's something that is tricky for all of us, all writers. Most writers I know have some kind of day job to pay their bills and are not making their living solely from their writing. Um, and it's so hard to commit to that time for yourself when you're usually prioritizing, the stuff that pays your bills. And so I thought of it as kind of like having a gym partner where, um, again, I feel like all of this is kind of a bit dated from the before times, but because now like no one wants to go into a gym right now, (laughs) but, but when you would, you know, when you'd get a gym membership, but you wouldn't really want to go, it's much easier to go if you know you're meeting a friend there and have an accountability buddy. Um, and so that's kind of what I envisioned for, for this, for this writing group that I had for a while. And I didn't want it to be something where you have to share your work with others because I've noticed in some writing groups I've been in, they've kind of fallen apart because um, people aren't always on the same page of what they're looking for in a group. And so this felt like a lot less pressure. It was much more about producing the work rather than critiquing the work. Yeah, I was. it was great too. And also a chance to have a tasty snack, um, which yes. was my, my little version of procrastinating in the middle of writing something was to go up to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, can you talk about anything that came out of those meetups for yourself? Was there any writing that you were working on during that time that was especially fostered by having that accountability meetup? Yeah. So that was before I got into graduate school at NYU. Um, I think a lot of what I was working on there was kind of figuring out what I wanted my next projects to be. And so it helped me clarify like where I wanted to go with my writing life. Um, and of course, some sometimes I was working on um, essays there uh, or freelance assignments because um, I would also use the time to work on some of my freelance writing assignments. But um, I think mainly what that time gave me was the realization that I wanted to really 
have an even bigger excuse for having to allot time for my creative writing. And that was part of why I applied for an MFA later in life. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a pretty amazing uh, thing to figure out like the role of writing in your life and your writing life. That's a, that's an a- achievement, Michelle, to like think yeah. about those things. And yeah. um, I, I'll admit I did something similar in that I recently started a graduate program in writing that I'm slowly working through. And I have my reasons for why I decided to do that at this point in my life. But I wonder if you could talk to what led to that decision for yourself in terms of, um, in, in, the, in the framework of community, perhaps, um, and if it's accountability or if it's uh, what other aspects of community maybe come into play in being in a graduate program for you. Yeah, accountability was absolutely part of it. I'm one of those writers who really needs a deadline to get things done. Um, And in fact, I need the like immediate pressure of one. And I think that part of that comes from my background as a journalist, um, where it's very deadline driven um, and having that pressure looming over your head. Um, The other thing is I knew that I wanted to... Um, deepen my craft. And like I said, I've been teaching and writing creative nonfiction for years. But um, fiction, I haven't published any of my fiction yet. And I have always wanted to write fiction. Um, And I came into the program workshopping some extremely rough stories uh, that she'll never see the light of day, or if they do, they will be reworked. We all um, have those. <laughs> exactly. But um, but I'm actually a big believer in submitting extremely rough drafts to workshop. In fact, you can always tell when there's someone who's like bringing in something that's been workshopped like 10 times before, and they just want to show the teacher that they have incredibly polished writing. Mm-hmm. But to me, that's that's not the point of a workshop. It's to experiment and try out new stuff. Um, so I knew that I really wanted to work with the caliber of writers that are um, part of the faculty at NYU. And um, I was fortunate enough to get in with full funding I I graduated from my undergraduate uh, program at the University of New Hampshire in 2006, and I still owe money on my student loans. Oh, my God. Um, preach. Ugh. Yeah. And I, I've, I've often kind of reached out to my online writing community, asking other writers about should I or shouldn't I get an MFA? It's kind of been like... Uh, uh, like every every maybe six months or so, I felt I feel like I would post about this on Facebook or Twitter, and you know the the eternal debate of like should I do this or shouldn't I do this? And the thing I would hear over and over again from other writers is to not go into debt for it unless you come from family money or have a partner who's supporting you financially. Like you just, it's not a good idea. And I am so glad I listened to that advice because um, I think. I, you know, I think it's enabling me to really focus on my craft and my writing and not be super stressed about like, oh my God, I'm going into thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of debt. (laughs) Yeah. Not to mention the years of afterwards and what that means for your life choices. I, I know that, yes, I know that I, I have a previous graduate degree in visual art that I'm still paying off and from almost 20 years ago, frankly. And yep. I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to go back and add to this because it means certain job decisions. It means certain everything that 
limits your time. And this is something um, one of our first podcast guests was Courtney Mom. And she talks love about Courtney. She's great. love, <laughs> love her. Um, she was talking about she talks about uh, having enough money for certain decisions in your life if you want to do them because you need to have the time to write and you don't want to limit yourself on that. But another thing that she talked about was uh, the importance for her of being around writers who write in different genres. Mm-hmm. For her, it was it was limiting a sense of competition in a way or just like having new perspectives on how to write things. Yeah. Um, so you have, you have taught creative nonfiction classes for so long and now you're studying fiction how does your study and teaching and writing of nonfiction and fiction inform each other have you seen that happening over the past couple of years absolutely um I mean I think a lot of what creative nonfiction writers do draws from some of the same things that fiction writers do and I'm actually really really interested in the blurring of the boundaries of genre um some of my favorite writers are people like um, Sheila Hetty, for instance, who's very good at that. Um, you know, I'm almost positive that her book Motherhood that came out was originally sold as nonfiction, but that I, I, I might be wrong about that, but I thought I remembered hearing that. And then it was, it was published as a novel. Um, mm. And then a lot of my favorite fiction writers are people who are writing fiction that might not be autofiction, but is often seen that way, like Rachel Cusk. And, um, you know, I think uh, I, I'm just really endlessly fascinated by by the blurring of the, the genres. But I think writing, good writing, when it comes down to it, whatever kind of prose writing you're doing, it, it you you need to know how to write a compelling scene. You need to know how to create characters, even if the character is yourself. You need to know how to um, uh, engage with plot and, um, you know, so, so it really, it does, it, it absolutely informs it, um, you know, having a background in creative nonfiction, but also writing fiction. The two are very related to me. They're intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, and you are also still teaching now while being a student yourself and still running this amazing, reading series, Red Ink, among all the other parts of your life. How do you do it, Michelle? How do you balance? How do you prioritize? Do you? Is that a myth? It is a myth. (laughs) I know I'm laughing because I'm like, I barely do it. Um, I, you know, it's hard. It's really difficult. Um, I'm not one of those writers who writes every day. uh, And I, it took me a long time to accept that that's okay, that there are different ways of being a writer. Um, and there are a lot of prolific writers out there who are like die hard about getting in their thousand words a day. But for me, a lot of the writing process is kind of um, the subconscious part that is happening, like living your life and taking in art and... Um, and kind of digesting it so so much so that often when I actually sit down to write something, like a first draft kind of pours out of me because of that genesis that's happening when I'm not writing. Um, whereas if I force myself, like I tried to do the thousand words of summer thing that Jamie Attenberg um, does, and I think it's a great thing. But stuff like that and NaNoWriMo, 
I always kind of feel tortured by because it feels like just writing the words just to reach this arbitrary word goal. And, um, and I don't feel like I'm always writing my best stuff when I write that way. I feel like I'm just trying to hit a word count. Um, so a lot of my favorite writers are slow writers like Joanne Beard, who is one of the best writers of all time. If I could write a book as perfect as the boys of my youth, I would be so happy Um, And that book came out when she was in her 40s. She's published one book each decade. So, like, she had a novel come out in her 50s, and then her new essay collection just came out, Festival Days, um, which also has a few short stories in it. But I... Uh, I feel like I just lost my train of thought. What was <laughs> It's totally fine. I lose my train of thought all the time. And I think that yeah. we're all supposed to these days. I don't know anyone who's not. Our brains are fried to the max uh, from the world. <laughs> they really are. Yes. I like, mean, I feel... <laughs> that keeps yeah. happening to me. <laughs> yeah. No, part of it also is, of course, uh, of course, we're fried. And of course, you're fried. Look, you do so many things. It's overwhelming. And I would love to hear, like, first, I was going to say, well, why, why are you so busy if it's so overwhelming? But I know some of the answer to that. You talk about slow writing. Writers don't exist by writing alone. We have to pay our bills. We have to do all kinds of things to get by in the world. So you have to balance. And I know that I personally have a lot of different ways that I try to remember to take care of myself amid the overwhelm and remember that even when I'm not writing, it's connected to the writing. So I appreciate you saying that. It's something that we've had come up in other sessions at the resort too also with I think uh, Shelly Oria uh, talked about it in a session with us and like the things you do that are writing that are not actually writing but they're still writing so stop beating yourself up about it um, yes you so know like being kind to yourself is so important because if you walk around like kind of with so much self-loathing all the time then that's not helpful for your writing either like good writing doesn't necessarily come out of self-loathing <laughs> now now you have me thinking about like what I've read that feels like the author is doing self-loathing because there those things are out there for oh sure. yeah for sure <laughs> for sure um <laughs> do you do you look to other folks in your life writers or no to help with that part of taking care of yourself like is there a community aspect to um keeping your spirits up, I guess, is uh, for, uh, I guess, the best way to put it? Yeah, I would say that um, for sure. Well, first of all, I would love to give a shout out to someone we both know and love who is one of the best writing teachers I've ever had. And that's Marie Helene Bertino. Yay, Um, Marie! (laughs) Marie is amazing. Um, Parakeet is one of my favorite novels I've read in recent years. Everyone should read that book. Uh, That's her most recent book. Um, But I, like she, I took a class with her at NYU this past semester. It was the last class of my MFA um, on practical magic and time travel in fiction. Um, And in her class, I started writing speculative fiction, which really freed me up um, in a way because uh, I, as somebody who has been used to writing creative nonfiction, having that real imaginative element helps kind of break me out of uh, a mold per se. And I, and I feel like I'm writing some really exciting stuff now, including a story I worked on in her class that I think is the best thing I've ever written. And I'm really excited about it. And 
so I feel like Marie has been a mentor to me. Um, so I really do depend on people who are smart and kind and generous. And that's what I try to be as a teacher as well. I think it's so important to be supportive um, and encourage a writer to be the best that they can be and make them feel like they want to go back and keep working on what they started and not feel like it's a failure and there's no way of saving it, which is how some people have made me feel in the past about things. <laughs> oh, um, man. So I think, yeah, I would, I would definitely have to say that Marie in this past year has been um, like a, a huge influence for me as somebody in the writing community, um, but also just friends of mine who are also writers. You know, I think, I think, um, it's so important to have peers who you can share your work with um, and who you can go to to talk about the writing life um, and who you can <laughs> vent with <laughs> over text messaging or DMs and not necessarily put that stuff out there on social media when you're feeling frustrated about things, you know. <laughs> so. Right, yeah. Pick up your phone and instead of doom scrolling on Twitter, text a friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a PSA from Michelle Philgate. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, and uh, just extra, extra shout out to Marie Helene Bertino. She's been amazing and also has uh, been very supportive to me over the years. And she, I love her. She's great. Um, she's yeah. a teacher that we've had in common. But I know when you're talking about how you started writing speculative fiction, I thought about how sometimes one person can come into your life and open a door in a certain way that really blasts open your writing and it yeah. can happen. We 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 had another teacher in common, you and I, that I feel the same way about, and that's Maza Mengiste. Oh, I love Maza. Maza's amazing. <laughs> so incredible. Um just She's a it, genius. She's like yeah. a total genius. So just with teaching even how to read and think about it and write about reading and oh yes. Right? Yeah. And then another person who I know we both have in common um, is Hannah Tinty, who really cracked open for me the mechanics of a story because being able to um, learn from her, not just from her writer brain, but from her editor brain too, as somebody who founded and edits one story, I feel like I benefited so much from the way that she, the specific way that she teaches writing, so... Yeah. And if anyone out there is not familiar with one story, please, please check it out. The entire staff there for all eternity has always been a really special crew. I honestly feel like that's a place where if you cross paths with anyone there, one story becomes part of your family. Yeah. Like it's just a real family kind of atmosphere. Um, how do we how do we foster atmospheres like that that feel like family? I think we have to build them ourselves like you're do you're doing and you've been doing both, you know, even before the resort with your reading series, you know, for me, it's, it's the same thing. Part of the reason that I built red, that, that I came up with red ink was because I spent years running events at different indie bookstores at River Run Bookstore in New Hampshire, and then at McNally Jackson, and then Community Bookstore in Park Slope. Um, and I loved doing that because I really loved getting to hear the writers talk about the way their minds work. Um, and it felt like a mini MFA in itself in some ways. Um, but I wanted something that was specifically my own because even when I was running events for those stores, it was like with the business in mind of the store. And I wanted something that I 
felt like there needed to be a space for. And there are already so many amazing reading series in New York, but I wanted a conversation style, a salon style event. And I wanted to bring together women writers of different genres and different backgrounds and at different stages in their careers for to create this kind of magical space. Um, so I started it back when Book Court, rest in peace, Book Court. I loved Book, Book Court. Court. <laughs> the very first one was at Book Court. And then it moved to Powerhouse for a while, which was wonderful too. And then Books or Magic opened right in my own neighborhood. And so I moved it to Books or Magic. Um, and it's been there ever since. I know we have listeners from all over and you just listed like three powerhouse one of them named Powerhouse, three powerhouse bookstores mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn is just so rich with literary life. And uh, that's also something I kept in mind moving to Queens. I was like, oh, okay, we need some some stuff going on here too, because writers are everywhere. And we are so lucky here in New York City to have so many, even in virtual times, I feel like we have so many opportunities to connect Um but I have found uh, that I my world has expanded being able to do these Zoom events and connecting with folks on a regular basis in Arizona and yeah. Florida and Illinois. And like I'm trying to see this silver lining on the on the pandemic life of how we're able to connect with so many people in different parts of the country now and the in the world. And that's something I've absolutely loved is, is, is people from all over being able to tune in to the Red Ink event, for instance. Like, that's really great to have a, a, a world, a global audience instead of just a Brooklyn audience. I mean, and you've truly brought people together in all these different ways and the, the, the getting together at the 61 Local and the bookstore events that you did and the Red Ink series now. But you've also brought writers together as the editor of an anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had uh, one of our previous guests also, Brian Gresco, we talked a little bit about his anthology that he put together. And that's a whole area that's fascinating to me to hear about. I would love to hear your thoughts around that, specifically with a community kind of lens, because you were bringing folks together to write essays about relationships with mothers. Mm-hmm. Um and some of the essays were difficult material. Some of them were less um, less so. Uh, but in a way, it created this community and this conversation, I think, between these essays and maybe perhaps as the book toured around. I don't know. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So I even said in the introduction to that book that uh, because I got a, lo- a lot of people often ask me, why didn't you write a memoir? Why did you decide to make this an anthology? Um, And I always knew that for this particular project, I wanted it to to be about multiple writers breaking the silence. So the, the subtitle is 15 Writers Break the Silence. And I think that's something that's really important that writers do in general, even if it's not necessarily about like a, a, a really horrible topic like trauma. You know, there are essays that deal with trauma and abuse in that in that book, but not all, as you said, not all of them are, but, and, you know, being able to articulate anything that might be difficult for us is, is very hard. That's one of the biggest challenges of being a writer, um, is breaking the silence and confronting stuff on the page that you might not necessarily want to confront. Um, 
And so I felt like for an anthology, it, it it's much easier to do that with a group of people, a community, rather than being alone on a stage. Um, it felt very lonely and scary to publish my essay that led to the book. And my essay came out right when the Me Too movement took off. Um, but I felt... Um, I felt better about doing this with a group of people. It, it made me, it made it possible for me. And I also felt like there were a number of writers that I wanted to reach out to and invite to be in this book because, and that came out of the years of running events at bookstores, of being on the board of the National Book Critics Circle, of um, helping to judge literary awards, like just, and being a book critic and, and interviewing authors. Like I, have been part of this community and literary landscape for a long time. And it felt like a natural extension of the work I've already been doing. Um, and so that was really important to me. And also to, to build a diverse group in that book too, because I wanted people of different backgrounds, different experiences with their moms. Um, I wanted it to reflect a wide spectrum of human experience. Yeah, totally. And as you're speaking, I was thinking the different things that you've done in literary life, it's really a testament to how all the things we do inform the next things or each other and working in events and teaching and these experiences build and accumulate. And I would encourage folks to remember that we all have a lot of different experiences under our belt, not to discount that because it's yeah. coming into whatever you're bringing, right? Whatever your next project is, it's part of it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I don't think I would have gotten this book deal and the book would have had as much success. And I would have, I, I definitely don't think I would have had like some of the all-star writers in it, like Carmen Marie Machado and Leslie Jameson and uh, Alexandra Chi and um, Brandon Taylor. Like, I don't think all of that would have fallen into place as easily if, if I was just trying to publish this anthology and not have done any of the work that I've done in the community for so long. Right. It totally feeds you and, and is part of your whole writing career, really. Well, as we get near the end of our time here together, I know that you are coming to the end of your MFA program. You said you finished your classes and you're, I guess, working on your thesis through the fall and will be graduating this coming December. I'd love to hear as we conclude your thoughts on how you plan to continue community in your life post-degree. Have you thought about that? All the time. It's kind of terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, let me leave you with a terrifying question. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what's next after I graduate. I, all I know is I will continue to teach and write um, in some combination of the two, like so many writers do. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what's next. But really, my main focus in the next several years is to kind of figure out my first book and get my first solo. I mean, my anthology is my first book, but my first solo book. Um, I've started to submit my short stories to try to get them published. And so I really want to focus on that a bit more. Yeah, I have no doubt that there will continue to be great things coming in your future <laughs> as you continue to work with other writers. You're such a 
good community member and you are kind and giving. And I really feel like it comes back in so many ways to folks who give to their community and um, just keep following your nose, Michelle. Like you're going to have such awesome things in the future and I can't wait to see all of them. Thank you. You too, my friend. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you. This was wonderful. And that, dear friends, brings us to the end of our fifth episode of Cabana Chats. I loved that conversation with Michelle, and I hope that you did too. Did you know that you can check out transcripts of every single one of our episodes in our free online community? Just go to community.theresortlic.com to join for tons of great resources for writers. You can find out more about our awesome guest, Michelle Philgate, at michellefilgate.com. And I'll put all of this information in the show notes as well. Our podcast editor is Craig Ely, and our music is by Pat Irwin. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota, and I'll see you next week in the cabana.